It's been a commonplace during the pandemic to talk about our unprecedented time. And with unprecedented comes another term, often used to describe our current age, something we seem to worry about, uncertainty. But what exactly do we mean when we speak of uncertainty? In the history of politics and philosophy, for instance, certainty is a core concept. As John Keane reminds us, it represents a claim of safety and control, often linked to justifications of monarchy or tyranny, for example. Democracy, on the other hand, institutionalizes uncertainty, according to Adam Jaworski. In theory, at least, democracies are forms of government open to different ways of knowing and fluctuating norms. In a series of aphorisms on certainty, written in the late 1940s, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein invites us to understand, like the Buddha before him, that nothing is certain but the uncertainty of the unforeseen. En français, rien n'est sûr que la chose incertaine. My name is Anoush Fraser Terjanian, and for this Recovery Project podcast, I've gathered three experts to delve into what we mean today when we speak of uncertainty in the economic realm. Jacqueline Best is a professor of political science in the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Social Sciences with expertise in expertise. Her current research, funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, studies the responses of economic and monetary policymakers to moments of crisis. Tabitha Bull is the president and CEO of the Aboriginal Business Council of Canada. She also sits on the Ontario Chamber of Commerce Board, where she works with members to improve business competitiveness across all industry sectors. And Armin Yanisian is an economist and Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers, well known for her expert interventions on macroeconomic policy in Canada. She recently called and named the She Session. Welcome to all three of you. I'd like to begin our exploration with an overarching question. What does uncertainty mean in your area of expertise? Armin, let's start with you. Well, as an economist, Anush, um, I have had drummed into me for decades that markets hate uncertainty, but they sure do love risk because you can price risk and you can make money off of risk. So there is a distinction between um, uncertainty and risk, and there's a further distinction between uncertainty and engineered chaos, which we also seem to be in the middle of. And then there's a third distinction between uncertainty and the design of how risk is uh, distributed. And over the last 30 years, we've seen shifting of risk uh, through rewriting of the rules and through corporate concentration from the least powerful to the most powerful. So the most powerful have been able to shield themselves from a risk and shift it to people that are less likely able to bear the cost of risk. So there is a lot of uncertainty about the nature of uncertainty, and I'm not sure how we're going to tuck into it, but I want us to be very clear that sometimes we're talking about uncertainty at a meta level, sometimes we're talking about risk, and sometimes we're talking about designed chaos. 
I think that's an excellent uh, starting point for the next question, but I'd first love to hear from our other panelists about what uncertainty means in your own areas of expertise. Jackie. Ah, thank you, Anoush. Well, I work on the question of what uncertainty means for expertise and its role in policymaking. Um, and so in some ways, in the sort of broadest sense, I'm asking how do we develop not just policies, but forms of knowledge that can cope with uncertainty um, and cope better with uncertainty. Uh, my own research tends to look at this through a historical perspective. So I go back and I you know, look at earlier economic crises in particular and, and try to make sense of how policymakers dealt with the extreme uncertainty of those moments and maybe how that's shifted over time. And I think one of the central things that I've found that I think is particularly um, useful to think through the present moment is I think I've, what we've done is develop a culture of expertise over the last few decades that really finds security in certainty um, and that wants that certainty. And I thought it was so interesting and you spoke to the, the dilemmas with that, that that poses for democratic policymaking, which needs to be more open to, to uncertainty. Um, and my worry is that as we focus, we overemphasize, we want certainty from our experts, we want certainty from our policymakers. The risk is that we end up underestimating uncertainty to, to wish it away, perhaps, you know, when we see all this kind of wishful thinking right now, or to treat it as exceptional, not pervasive. Or, of course, as we see right now, sometimes even to deny it outright with very huge, very significant costs, as we've seen. So I just, I guess, to start off, I, I want to just flag the fact that for me, I think it's important to to study this because I think this tendency to underestimate uncertainty can actually be quite dangerous. Um, that we underestimate the costs of uncertainty and then we underinvest in the resources to help us manage, whether it's manage climate change, you know, uh, develop an adequate healthcare system, an economic safety net, and so on. Uh, we also don't then look for the unanticipated consequences of policies necessarily. We, we assume a kind of linear path and are not ready when things go a very different direction. Um, and finally, and this I think speaks again to the, the question of democracy that you raised in your introductory remarks, that it, if we're not careful, we run the risk of creating a kind of political disenchantment, right? That if, if our politicians are promising certainty and a series of technical solutions to everything, but then are not able to deliver it, and of course we can't, that's realistic. But the problem is if we promise and don't deliver, we end up eroding, I think, confidence in those, in, in expertise itself and in the democratic institutions that really need to, to, to rely on it. Excellent. And Tabitha, you've had a long and extraordinarily varied career so far, but at the moment you're focusing on representing and helping business interests and entrepreneurs. So how, how is uncertainty, what does it mean in your area of focus at the moment? I think definitely, you know, any entrepreneur uh, uncertainty is just part of their life day to day and something that they need to own and understand. Anyone who's starting a new business in any time definitely uh, takes on that uncertainty. I think right now we're definitely seeing that, um, you know, as the, my other panelists have said, we don't know when that uncertainty may end. And there's no real way to plan day to day or month to month at this point. And definitely we do see that um, so much more is outside of the control of an entrepreneur at this time, you know, where your cash flow is, uh, whether you're able to open or not open. And, you know, there's an interesting quote from Lennon that says, um, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. And I think, you know, <laughs> the current date's October 5th. And I feel like last week, 
decades happened. So um, I think the uncertainty piece is is really huge right now for entrepreneurs. And the most we can do for them is to try to provide some type of, of course of direction. Excellent. You raise a really um, fascinating point, which is this passage of time and this specific moment that we're in today. And I wondered if we could just dive in a little bit more deeply into this concept of in this specific time and moment, is there something special about the uncertainty we're experiencing? Or is there um, something that is uh, ex- that we should be expecting and we should um, maybe have less bewilderment um, when we are approaching our current moment? I wonder, uh, Jacqueline, would you like to pick up on that? Sure, thank you, Anush. Um, yeah, I really think, and I'm just, you know, even just on a personal level, like it's quite clear this crisis has really brought home to us just how profound and pervasive uncertainty can be. Whether we're talking about this sort of complex macro level of globalization and the globalization of not just the economy and global value chains, but what that means for for health um, and its complexities, but also really that everyday life, you know, our sense on a day-to-day basis, the kind of visceral experience of, you know, are my kids going to school or not? You know, are my parents going to get sick? Am I going to get sick? Am I going to get my job back? Um, That so many more people are living that on a day-to-day basis. And I think that context, that the macro and the micro uncertainty, I mean, I really think one of the things that we see now is it's really brought out the best and the worst in policymakers. So we can see those who really wrote, risen to the challenge and are managing uncertainty quite effectively and those who are not. Um, and so we can think of like our public health champions, you know, those officials, those who are doing so well or the, and the government leaders who are paying attention to them. Um, who are figured out how to speak calmly and clearly and draw on that expert knowledge while at the same time being quite open about what we do know and what we don't know, what we should do given those circumstances. Um, And that's an approach to uncertainty that recognizes and then finds a way to act. Um, But we've also seen other more authoritarian, dare I say, leaders, you know, denying the uncertainty or even at the same time exploiting and I think this speaks, maybe Armin will come back to this at some point, right? This question of chaos, but the, the ways in which one can exploit uncertainty to stoke fear and division, right? And that's also been that that's the dark side that we've seen in recent years. Um, and I also wanted to just pick up on the, I think the other big thing that, that we've seen um, is that this moment has shown us just how unevenly distributed uncertainty is, um, as are the tools for managing it. And I think Armin touched on this a bit, but the idea that, what we've seen is that people have radically different chances of getting sick right now. Um, and they have radically different resources for coping with that in economic and in, and in personal terms. Um, and so, you know, whether or not you are, you know, like me, quite fortunate living in a you know, reasonably affluent neighborhood um, with a good job, right. And some security, my experience of that uncertainty is very different from someone, perhaps a racialized uh, Canadian, perhaps an indigenous Canadian or just a Canadian who's working in the gig economy and trying to make this, to figure this out. Um, and of course, that is not new, right? This, is, this has been a broader shift. We've seen this kind of, uh, it, not just inequality, but inequality in people's experiences of, of uncertainty and ability to deal with that has really happened over the last few decades. Um, as we've seen in increasing numbers of people forced into more precarious employment, um, into the gig economy, relying on privatized pensions and so on. But I mean, so it's not new, but I think it's much more intense right now. And this this concept, you raised this very important concept about just the uncertainty of everyday life 
and I'm, I'm, I'm imagining Tabitha that this is something you must have to work very closely with your um, members on. I, I, I wonder what your sense of this challenge is. Yeah, I think definitely, you know, the, the difference is, as Jacqueline said, is that it really demonstrates the point of privilege that a pandemic or something um, such as where we are today um, really highlights the socioeconomic gap between um, individuals in this country, but in some ways also exacerbates it. And, you know, part of that is that it has raised that conversation and has pushed for research to really look at a gender lens and to look at um, a diverse lens of of how is this impacting different businesses, particularly just in this context. Um, But we also need to think when we're working on programs and working on relief to ensure that they um, are accessible by all all different sectors. So if we think about some of the programming that came out quite quickly, which is was excellent in the response, um, from our perspective and specifically looking at Indigenous businesses, a number of the programming um, could not be accessed by Indigenous businesses. So some of that is, you know, a number of Indigenous and, and a number of, of diverse or minority businesses, women-owned businesses included, don't typically have financing from traditional financial institutions because there is a bias there about lending money to uh, minorities or to women-owned businesses or to Indigenous businesses. So if we're then going to put the relief programs through the same um, routes as we do the original ones and those are not accessible, then the relief programs also aren't as accessible. So that definitely leads an additional uncertainty when we see these gaps in the timing of when the programming is available and when we're not um, being certain that the programming is uh, going to be as easily accessible to all different sectors of business opportunities. I think the other thing um, really is we're seeing new businesses in even if we look at women entrepreneurship or specifically indigenous entrepreneurship so indigenous businesses are being created at nine times the rate of non-indigenous businesses in the last couple of years that means that a lot of the businesses are newer so they're even younger than a general population of new entrepreneurs or small medium enterprises Uh, they haven't lived through uh uncertainty they haven't potentially had a business through a recession of any kind. So it gives you that also, you know, I've not been here before. How do I react and what do I need to look at to ensure that my business continues? So it does definitely has raised the impact of, um, of COVID-19 and, and a, an economic recession. And Armin, this, this um, question of the, the gender lens specifically that Tabitha raised, it's your, uh, one of your areas of, of great expertise and where you've had immediate impact. Uh, uh, a phrase you coined uh, showed up in the speech from the throne. Would you like to talk a little bit more about, tell us a little bit more about what you think um, the specific context of uncertainty today, um, how it plays out? So this is the world's first ever she session. Most recessions are he sessions. They start off with men in the goods producing sector, which is manufacturing, construction, mining, forestry, etc., um, losing their jobs because of a demand slowdown. And that is triggered either by a natural disaster or a financial collapse. 
this is the first time we stopped the economy and the part of the economy we stopped was what we deemed to be non-essential. And with the exception of schools, which were amongst the first schools and childcare centers being amongst the first things to shut down, which were clearly essential. And on top of that was non-essential retail trade, bars and restaurants, um, recreation, international travel, of course, um, and personal services, all of which are dominated by women um, as employees and all of which tend to be lower paid. So we had the exact reversal of history where lower paid, primarily women, lost their jobs first. The men caught up real fast in month two. Um, men caught up just as fast as women, but month three, month four, month five, men's recovery as various regions of Canada reopened at various paces, men picked up their work faster than women. Now, I want to go back to the point, the excellent point Tabitha was making about the type of income supports that were provided immediately that clearly took into account that our traditional forms of income support during economic downturns, which is EI, uh, jobless benefits, were not fit for purpose for something like this because only about 40% of jobless people got jobless benefits prior to the pandemic, and most women did not. So most unemployed women did not. So something had to be done real fast uh, because there was always a gendered skew to who got supported um, when economic downturns took place. But now we're into a reopening phase where um, part of the sector uh, is coming back because it's publicly financed, that's schools. Public finance, publicly delivered schools are reopening in a kind of rocky way. We've had six months to figure it out, but we haven't really figured it out. And it looks like the schools might become a secondary vector of transmission, even if the kids don't get sick, that the contagion might spread through schools. And we have yet to see how that's going to play out, but we're seeing parents a little bit uneasy about sending their kids back to school. Um, depending on what their home situation is. And childcare, which is not publicly funded and publicly delivered by and large. By and large, it's a market service. By and large, for the last 50 years, we've treated childcare as a market choice that goes hand in glove with another personal choices, which is whether or not you're going to have kids and whether or not you're going to work if you have kids, if you're a woman. So we've treated women's decision to work as a personal choice women's and families' decision to have kids is a personal choice. But now the labor market is 50% women, right? 50% of employees are women. So when they get knocked out of the labor market in the numbers, they've been locked out. And there is no safe place to put their kids when, when it's time to go back. Then the path, path to recovery is blocked for women. And mathematically speaking, because of the macro economy's reliance on women's incomes to support purchasing power and purchasing power of households is 57% of GDP. It's the number one driver of GDP everywhere in the world. China, Europe, US, household spending is the number one driver of GDP. And if there are blocks, systemic avoidable blocks in the system, in the path to recovery for women to be able to return to work, um, then you know you're engineering 
a problem of macroeconomic revival. You're either going to stall out the pace of recovery or you're going to reverse its course because of the lack of safe reopening of schools and childcare centers. And I want to reinforce this is a gender story, but it is not a feminist story. It is a macroeconomic story. And we are not going to get back to the place where Tabitha's people who are trying to start up new jobs know whether they've got demand or not unless we've got safe reopening of schools and safe reopening of childcare centers. And right now, childcare centers are collapsing because they cannot deal with the weight of the pandemic costs of the economy, higher costs to provide the service, lower revenues because more people are choosing not to send their kids to childcare. So we've got a really devilish, prickly public policy problem, which has led to the throne speech not only referring but also the need for childcare, a national strategy on childcare. Is the jurisdiction responsible for providing safe reopening of schools and childcare, which is provincial and territorial, have dropped the ball. So, and this isn't a provincial problem, it's a national problem. So now we're starting to talk about a child, a national childcare system. Uh, kind of interesting. We'll, we'll see if we get there or not. Well, it's a, it's a it's a, a a moment. At least there's heart in the opening of the conversation now, in a way that maybe has been uh, stalled um, at at least at the at the federal level for some time. Um, but you raised in your in your um, in your comments earlier. I mean, a very interesting set of potential dichotomies, and I wondered if we could delve into those a little bit more, this concept about the difference between uncertainty and risk that you that you raised, and this concept of un uncertainty and chaos also. Um, you alluded to the, the notion of engineered chaos, and also um, both um, Jackie and Tabitha as well have been talking about vulnerability as it has been linked to uncertainty or not. So I wondered if we could um, delve a little bit into these dichotomies to kind of in a semiotic sense, um, work around the bounds of this, this concept of uncertainty. Um, Jackie, would you like to go first? Sure, yeah. I mean, the difference between uncertainty and risk, I think it's, it's very, very important, but it also often doesn't seem obvious at first. I think on a intuitive level, we often just use them interchangeably without thinking it through. Um, but actually, if you, again, if you dig a little into to the way people have been thinking about this, um, there are quite different ways of conceptualizing the stuff we don't know, right? The unknowns. I'm not going to get into the Rumsfeld unknown, knowns, unknowns, right? But, but there, are, there are different kinds of unknowns. <laughs> and some of them, so risk is something that can usually be quantified or he and hedged against, right? We can think in terms of probability, rolling a dice, going to the casino, um, et cetera. Uncertainty, on the other hand. Um, is is really cannot be quantified in that same way. We can think of, you know, well, the outcome of the U.S. election, um, the likelihood of any given conflict emerging at a particular time, war, the timing of a global pandemic, right? Um, these things are not uh, amenable to, to risk-based calculation in any kind of useful kind of way. Now, Armin talked, I think, remi you know, reminded us that markets may hate uncertainty, but they love risk. Um, because risk can be, you can, you can quantify it, therefore you can 
uh, sell it, right? If you can price it, and then you can you can people who want more risk can pay more, it's, you know, it, or get more returns and so on. Now, policymakers also, I think, prefer risk to uncertainty, right? They like the idea that someone can give them a model and it can be somewhat predictable and insure it against and so on. Um, but again, I think it's worth reminding ourselves. Noticing a culture that tries to turn uncertainty into risk. It's okay to say, we'll hedge against the risk and then we'll see what we can do about uncertainty. But if we tend to treat everything that's uncertain as if it's risk, um, that is also, that's dangerous, right? Because we underestimate the costs of um, the, the black swans, right? The things, the world altering events. And just think of them, you know, the election of Brexit, the election of Trump, we can go on, right? The global pandemic. These are highly unlikely and yet profound events, which seem to have played a huge role in shaping where we are today. Um, so how do we, you know, how do we come to terms with those, um, when our tendency is to, again, want to do things that are manageable, priceable, quantifiable, and so on. Um, and I think the other thing that's important to point out here is maybe part of the appeal of risk and thinking in terms of risk is that, um, it can be often anyway, mitigated and managed individually, right? That we can shift the responsibility to individual banks, for example, to have adequate risk models and practices and so on as happened before the 2008 financial crisis. That didn't go so well, but that was the idea. You know, you just individualize it and you don't think too much about, you know, what is now called systemic risk, but I would call uncertainty. Um, you can also take, you know, if, if, if you're just talking about risk, you can say, well, you should have you know, individuals. You say, well, save and have life insurance. And again, you know, take individual responsibility for those risks. But if you're talking about uncertainty, it's a collective undertaking, right? We can only collect, we can only prepare for things like the, you know, the uncertainty of climate change and of global pandemics and so on by working collectively to, to protect and to prepare ourselves. And so again, there's a shift in thinking, I think about how we, how we understand these, but also then how we prepare on a policy level to deal with, with uncertainty instead of just risk. I mean, you, I, I feel you were interpolated by these remarks. Did you want to continue on this, uh, on this vein? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering what my value add is here because Jacqueline did such a good job of that. But um, a reminder that risk shifting isn't by accident, it is managed. And that has happened systemically for the last 40 years or more. Um, a reminder that what the pandemic has actually revealed more than any other event I can think of, that what will happen is unknowable because it depends on what we do and how we're going to behave as a pooled group, not as individuals is unknowable right now because there's been so much emphasis on individualizing everything that we don't have that wallpaper mentality that might've accompanied our elders going into the Second World War or the First World War, there but for the grace of God go I. That isn't a thought for most young people. It's like, I'm gonna duck this. I'm gonna get away with, you know, doing this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna duck the risk. Or it won't apply to me. And that isn't just young people that do that, but there does seem to be a huge generational distinction with with this pandemic as to how immune you are because you don't get sick and then it's just not clicking that, you know, you might not get sick, but you have it and you might make other people really sick and you might overwhelm a system of healthcare that cannot take care of you if you do get sick. So I just think there's a lot of 
issues associated with uncertainty that are, as Jacqueline has pointed, rightly pointed out, are manageable, but have been managed in the wrong direction to individualize and shift responsibility away from collective action towards individual action and inaction. And it's coming back to this big time. Uh, you know, and just to repeat what I said earlier, we are not going to economically get out of this funk until the world is safe. And the businesses that are right now hanging by their fingernails, which include childcare right now, um, are, as Dan Kelly of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses said, there's a lot of them that are dead out there. They just haven't gone to their funeral yet. You know, there's a lot of dead businesses that are walking around only for the grace of federal income supports, which will not go on forever. So the only way we get demand back up to have a healthy economy is to make sure that the people in the economy are healthy. And that's still, you know, six months into it, almost seven months into it, that seems to not have penetrated yet. As a, what you do affects me. And what we do together affects whether we can make any money out of this game and take care of ourselves. And there's still a lot of antipathy. It's, I'll, I'll just add one more layer of uncertainty. It is uncertain to me that we will get broad-based consensus that we need a, a bigger role of government for the long term. And if that is rejected, as it has been for, well, since the early 1980s, if, if that continues to be rejected, we can't afford it, the pandemic costs are too high, you know, the federal debt is crushing, all that, all that really, really old, like the 20th century called, they want their policies back, right? But like, we're in the 21st century, something new is happening, and yet it's uncertain that people will make the mental pivot, decision makers and decision, you know, influence leaders will make the pivot that permits us to act in a collective way, which is the only way out of this. We cannot do it individually, with one exception, which is how we behave ourselves with respect to keeping ourselves healthy and those around us healthy. Everything else is not in our control individually. These are themes that speak right into uh, Tabitha's area of uh, responsibility and representation. Um, and so, Tabitha, I wondered if you might develop a little bit what Armin was uh, um, talking about, this, this uh, specific quality of the difference between risk and uncertainty in the business sector and, and, and the effects in, amid, amid your constituency. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think, you know, it's definitely as we've talked about, you know, risk is definitely something that you can measure, evaluate against, understand, do I take this risk or not? And we're in this place of uncertainty where you don't have an option. Um, there, It's being placed upon a business or upon all of us, and, and we don't even know what's coming. So I think the thing that really strikes me is this combining building effect that uncertainty is having on all of us as individuals, as employers, as business owners, as students, you know, uh, on our youth. And it is about, you know, everyone wanting to have that control over every part of my own life or their own life. And, and we can't 
we just don't have control. And until we only really worry about the things we can control, which as Armin said, is I can control my health and that I'm ensuring that I'm keeping safe and keeping the ones around me safe. Um, outside of that, you know, everything else is uncertain, but that creates a real um, mental health burden, I think, on so many of us, which then, you know, human reaction is then to, okay, I'm, I'm uncertain about my personal future. So I'm not going to go spend my money at this business um, to speak about the GDP and the contribution of GDP from household income. That, that too is about uncertainty. It's not about a risk of spending or investing. It's about, I don't know where I'm going to be financially in two months. So I'm going to hold on to this money and not, not spend it. And I think too, from the, from a perspective of our youth and our students, I mean, they're in a time of uncertainty where as parents, we can't even give them that, you know, uh, who are they looking to for some type of certainty about school or um, their sports or so just yesterday I live in Toronto both my boys hockey season is now on hold until January um, and those are like significant changes for young children who you know those are their routines so how do we as a whole people as I mean said provide some type of certainty I think so important for our youth as well um, but then also from a business perspective I think it is so important to really look at where we are spending our money, where we are, um, what we're doing with what we can to provide certainty for our economy here within Canada so that we can move on. I don't personally, I, I don't see us having certainty until we have some type of rapid test that's readily available with a rapid answer. And that goes to schools. You know, if my kid's teacher is sick and have to wait seven eight days for an answer, then are my children in a school? Then am I working from home? It's also connected to that piece of certainty around the health aspect and how do we get rapid testing on site um, in those places that are most important for us to be able to open the economy. I want to, I want to piggyback on what Martha just said, if you wouldn't mind. So um, both Jacqueline and Tabitha have mentioned inequality. And we know that in the wake of the pandemic being called, some businesses have done real good. <laughs> some of them have failed. So I talked earlier about the ones that are hanging by their fingernails, particularly small businesses, but we know big businesses, particularly big grocery stores and online businesses have done fantastically, not to mention the platforms that permit us to communicate with one another and internet providers. So some businesses have done extraordinary well. And we have heard, we've had news reports that the billionaires have made billions, right? In the midst of the millions of people losing even more billions in earnings. So huge inequalities that have been exacerbated. And I'm not talking about the gendered, racial, indigenous, the identity politics of inequality, I'm now just going to talk about size and say that what is happening right now to business is of great concern to us all, should be to us all, because it is making the super large, even super larger, and even more powerful 
we were talking about a wave of corporate concentration in the wake of the global financial crisis that was a bit of a wake-up call. And people were starting to talk about antitrust legislation being required again a hundred years after it was originally introduced because there's so much power vested in so few players. Well, we ain't seen nothing yet. The pandemic is going to create a cratering of small businesses. It will destroy the ecosystem of capitalism, essentially, the diversity that is in that makes capitalism great to the extent that it does offer opportunities to people. It will continue to consolidate opportunity, market power, and bargaining power in the hands of smaller and smaller numbers of players, which should be, which places the secret sauce of democracy functions best under capitalism. Capitalism functions best when there's a democracy. That so-called magic formula that guided economic expansion for most of the 20th century is at risk because of what's happening with, and this is not uncertain, this is certain that this is going to happen. And at record pace, and we don't have a legislative system, we don't have a legislative framework, or as Jacqueline has pointed out, a public policy framework that is designed to gear to, to deal with these globe straddling firms in many cases, you know, that no single nation is able to rein these powers in uh, with international mining firms, international internet firms, international firms, often firms for food, right? The, the, the food producers, the seed producers, the fertilizer uh, producers, let alone the supply chains that bring the food to your, uh, to your, to a neighborhood near you. We have got a huge problem going down the road. And I, I think this is part of the uncertainty that literally keeps me up at night. This is a dire and foreboding <laughs> look into the future. And, and, certainly, and certainly it's, it's something that um, we, we are all having to contend with, and especially um, at the policymaking level. But I wonder if we could think a little bit now about what then in that context might recovery look like? Uh, are there any silver linings? Uh, or is, 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 that a, is that a fiction that, um, that is intended just to keep us, um, keep us going along the lines of this uh, old normal that um, was getting in, in comfortable uh, in the system? Tabitha, would you, would you like to start us off on that? You know, I think there's been a few silver linings in, as I said before, you know, some of these issues that we've seen around programming, some of the issues we've seen around um, ensuring that the supports are equitable and are accessible to everyone. Um, although there's been a delay, I have found that the policymakers have listened when we've said, you know, you missed, you missed a few things here and we need to make some changes and they have listened and are making changes. And now more than in the past, they're reaching out in advance to say, okay, we're designing this. What do we need to be thinking about? What are we missing? So I think that is is a bit of a silver lining. I think also um, we've definitely seen um, collaboration, more collaboration across national business associations, across national indigenous economic associations, and amongst businesses as well. Um, 
in how do we support one another and what are ways that we can partner together to answer this call. And I think if I look forward, um, provided that they are supported in the right way and provided we continue to support our entrepreneurs, they there is a good chance that they stand to be the solution here. I mean, entrepreneurs are naturally innovators. They're naturally brave and courageous. Um, they're able to pivot quickly. They're determined. They are individuals who are, you know, nimble and thinking outside the box. So those are the, the Canadians that we need to be supporting in our uh, programming and recovery. Um, even if we look to initially the uh, supply of PPE and the response of how do we ensure that we have enough PPE for Canada, we need to ensure that we're not just going to the large 3Ms and um, large businesses to do to make that supply, but that we're looking to our, our small and medium businesses to either partner on those or to look and say, like, what innovative ways are you thinking? I mean, as Armin said, those small medium enterprises are really the fabric of our economy, and we need to ensure that we're supporting them. And I think that there is a real opportunity if we do so. Jacqueline, have you got any sense of what recovery might look like? And what's your view on uh, silver linings? Um, this is a great question. I actually asked this question. To, I teach a course um, on sort of politics of everyday, of the, the everyday political economy, everyday life of the global political economy. And we look at things like what's happening to work and what's happening to care and what's happening to corporations. This is a really interesting time to be talking about that. Um, and the final question that I asked them is, you know, where does COVID lead us? What is the political economy of COVID? Does it, does it open up the world and the possibilities? Do we move somewhere better or do we go somewhere worse? Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question because there's no easy answer. Um, I mean, I think on the one hand, yes, we can see it. We could, we could very well end up reinforcing a lot of the existing inequalities and gaps, right? Along the lines of gender, class, race, size, you know, the, the makeup of, of, you know, what happens to those, those neighborhood businesses. Um, absolutely. On the other hand, of course, this crisis has made some of those gaps and problems more visible. So my hope, I would say, if we want to talk about this in terms of where we could take the recovery, where it could be be get better, my hope is that we'll find a new way of, of really thinking about and coping with uncertainty, right? That we'll, we'll find a way that policymaking, a way forward in policymaking that takes uncertainty seriously, um, that puts expert knowledge at its core, but also is open about you know, what we do and don't know as we are seeing, I think often, not always, but often in the public health sector right now, um, that we'll see uh, more recognition of the fact that uncertainty, the lived experience of uncertainty is very unevenly distributed right now. And that that is, that is a real problem, that that kind of visceral experience with precariousness is maybe, all, maybe some of the more, more fortunate among us are feeling that now, and maybe that should wake us up. Um, I, my, again, my students, I always ask them, what kind of job do you have? What kind of job do you want? We talked about the history of how work has become increasingly flexibilized, gigified, you know, made less and less certain. And usually they're like, I'm bored. I want to do lots of stuff. I don't care. And this year they're saying, I want to work for the government. <laughs> I want to have a really secure job. So they are trying now to think about how do they manage uncertainty moving forward. And they're much more aware of that, of the potential costs of that flex flexibilization. Although I still hope some of them become entrepreneurs. <laughs> um, and finally, I think, you know, yes, we've talked about this. We need to act collectively, right? Maybe this is the moment where we start thinking about that. We make that switch and we start thinking about how we have to take collective responsibility 
um, to protect ourselves and others from the cost of extreme uncertainty and invest in that social infrastructure. So my hope is this is not an exception or an intensified fire, but it's a wake up call. And we, we do recover in a way that allows us to cope with the other uncertainties like climate change that are coming down the pipeline. I mean, you've, you've named the she covery too, as an imperative. How, how can you, how, how do you see that moving forward? Could you, could you develop um, this point? And, and also would love to hear you on, on silver linings. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Armenian, so I don't do silver linings. I do like the bullet that's waiting around the corner for me. <laughs> I'm really good at being nervous about the future. <laughs> Not so great about, oh my God, this is going to be so great. <laughs> uh, but it is possible that this is going to be so great because, you know, everything about the moment going into COVID was pointing to whatever was for the last half century is not fit for purpose going forward. It's it's breaking down. You know, I've been a feminist since I was a teenager, which is low these many years have passed. I'm still a feminist and I'm still angry. Uh, but I've been a feminist uh, for um, hmm, almost 60 years now. And um, the reason I raised this is it, it, it wasn't until the American president was elected and talked about putting his hand on somebody's pussy that a new women's movement restarted and it has not given up it from, from that, from the women's with the pussy hat marches in February of 2017 that morphed into the me too movement and other movements came in the missing and murdered women's uh, indigenous women's movement got folded into that people are really stinking angry right what is happening with black lives matter and how in canada that is also folded into the righteous and rightful indignation of how indigenous people are treated is happening it's starting to fold in what how we treat migrant farm workers in canada so we are seeing this identity politics movement that eclipses the pandemic is alongside with it, but is beyond it. And I think this is going to, I mean, Jacqueline makes the point about climate change preceding and pre, like post-dating the pandemic. There are some big issues and the biggest mother of them all is population aging, which is happening throughout the global North, which is going to require more people coming from uh, from the global south, which in and of itself is, uh, there's a lot of white people that have antipathy towards that, even though they need them, they're not sure they love them. So we're gonna have that fight. And if you don't want the economy to shrink, which means you have less money for the things that you love that maintain your standard of living, then we're going to have to have all hands on deck in Canada. So here's the silver lining that I didn't think I could deliver to you. The silver, silver lining of the moment is because of the pandemic revealing that the essential economy is held up by the caring economy. You can't have no GDP production without the care of the people too old, too young, and too sick to work. So the caring economy is the social infrastructure, just like roads and bridges, are the physical infrastructure without which GDP does not happen at all. And 
Hopefully we've woken up to that. But the second hopefully we've woken up to it is we need all hands on deck because of population aging. We've got more people leaving the labor market than coming in. Unless, and because we have no productivity growth and export growth isn't on the horizon, unless you are willing to make sure you are bringing in more people from the margins to do work that is good paid jobs, that you're willing to upskill people and actually integrate groups that have been historically and systemically marginalized for mainstream economic activity. This is a, a moment to get her done. This is a moment to actually reduce inequalities that is built into the market system. The market's kind of asking you to do it. If you don't do it, the only other way to prevent economic decline over the long run is more immigration. But there you go again. It's like all these people that aren't your mainstream white, well-paid, you know, mid-career people. We're bringing in people that are systemically left in the So, yeah. Uncertain. We have two paths in front of us. We just hunker down in what we've been doing for the last half century, which has not delivered for the majority of people. Or we turn around and say that thing is now dead and we have to create something else that is more inclusive, which, by the way, is not a lefty argument. It is the argument of the International Monetary Fund, of the World Bank and of the Organization for Economic cooperation and development and has been since 2010. The term inclusive growth is not my term. It is not the term of progressives. It is the term of mainstream Bretton Woods international economic institutions saying the past system has not delivered on its own terms and for economic growth to continue and democracy to not be ravaged by protest you need a different model of growth. And so here it is, the moment has come to deliver a different model of growth and God bless us, I hope we do it. Well, on that, and that rallying cry and, and, a, and silver lining, I, I think it's a good moment to pause, but certainly uh, on the understanding that we have a lot left to pursue and in, in, in this uh, exploration of what uncertainty means. So I'd like to thank you, all three of you very much, Jacqueline Best, Tabitha Bull, Armin Yalnesian, for this very rich conversation. Thank you. Merci, Abu. Thank you. It was fun. And I'd also like to thank the team at Canada 2020 for making this podcast possible. And warm thanks as well to our colleagues at the University of Ottawa's Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy for inviting us to participate in this important recovery project. Merci. Merci.